Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation homeowning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com biggerpockets. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes, but how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 Exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com. Or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, and we have a really cool two-part show for you today. We came up with the idea for this show, unfortunately, because two of the panelists and our friends on the show, James and Jamil, have gone through some unfortunate situations recently where they were victims of scams, basically. And we thought it would be a great opportunity to talk about these two unfortunate situations and learn what we can from them. And hopefully in that process, we can help all of you who are listening to this avoid working with some of the bad operators that are unfortunately present in pretty much every industry. And unfortunately, real estate is no different. So the way the show is going to work is we're going to start by talking about different types of operators in the real estate investing space and how to best vet them. So um, each one of the panelists is going to talk about uh, one of their expertise and how they vet an operator that they work with frequently. So Kathy's going to talk about vetting syndications. Henry's going to talk about vetting contractors. James is going to talk about vetting lenders. And Jamil is going to talk about vetting wholesalers when you work with wholesalers. So there's tons of great information, really practical, actionable tips um, that each of them provide. And then in the second part of the show, we're going to hear from James and Jamil, who are both going to share a lot of details about the scams that they were unfortunately party to and involved in. And it's, you know, it sucks, really. There's just really no other way to say it. Um, They both uh, experienced some tough stuff, but I really admire and respect and I'm grateful for the fact that they're willing to share their experiences with all of us so that we can learn from some of the situations they found themselves in. So stick around for this episode. It's a long episode, but that's because it's packed with good information. So you're definitely going to want to stay to the end. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? 
With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right. Welcome back, everyone. We are going to be talking about how to vet operators. And again, we're going to talk about syndications, wholesalers, lenders, and contractors. Kathy, we're going to start with you and talk about syndications. This has been, at least I, I invest in syndications, and I think you know the potential for not just necessarily scammers, but just incompetence in this space has been really widespread over the last couple of years. And we would love to hear your advice on how you insulate yourself from bad actors or poor actors, you know, how you advise other, you know, the people in the real wealth network to do the same. Well, the incompetency thing is what I would often fall for. Uh, So the lessons I'm going to share today are learned from experience. And they're really hard lessons. And it's really important to share because there have been scammers or incompetent people in real estate, not just over the last few years, it's a, it's been for, you know, centuries, but the last few years is, is probably where it really accelerated because of the internet. Uh, you know, at the, in the last euphoric state, which was 2005, 2006, there weren't some of these social media outlets where you could learn about things so quickly. So I think this time around, the information would get out faster. You would have internet stars overnight who suddenly were experts. And, um, and, you know, people fall for me, you know, people that they see in the media and the media now is pretty easy to produce. You do it yourself. Um, so the things that I've learned, um, uh, the, the big one is track record. Now, uh, there's two sides to this, but I would say when going into a syndication, you want to make sure that somebody in the leadership team, somebody in the general partnership um, that's that's in charge of the investment has experience doing what they say they're going to do or that what the business plan says, that they have experience for not just a few deals and not just a few years. Uh, it's okay to do that. If you want to invest with someone who did one deal or no deal um, and you just want to, you know, you think the business plan looks good and you want to go for it, you just have to know that you're at higher risk. Um, doesn't mean don't do it. Just, just know that if someone only has a few years experience, they just don't have a lot of experience specifically in changing markets and changing economic cycles like we're in right now. Um, you know, I, I see people saying, wow, I, uh, if you can't put your money in a bank, where can you put it? And I'm going, were you not around in 2008? I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we had bank failures. Literally today we had bank failures. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, what do you mean? No, that's why the 
The government only backs $250,000. That's why I make my husband run around and put deposits in different banks. You shouldn't have more than $250,000 in any one bank um, because because that's all that's insured. And well, I guess that's changing as of today where I think the government's going to come come bail it out, which is, which is probably great for the depositors. Uh, but that, so just track record. If you really want a conservative investment, make sure that they've been through a few cycles because then they'll really know how to handle these different situations and they would know how to underwrite. A lot of people were underwriting as if we were going to have low interest rates forever. And that was clearly a, a, a unique situation, a pandemic led um, low interest rate environment. And, and that was going to change. And if you had a three or four year deal, you'd better underwrite it with the possibility that interest rates would go up and, and people didn't. I mean, that's what Silicon Valley Bank did. I mean, they, they were buying bonds thinking that uh, rates were going to always stay low. So, uh, so track record is a huge one, but people could put whatever they want on, on, on their bio in the PPM, you know, the private placement memorandum or the operating agreement. They can, they can make a pretty nice looking bio. Um, I, what I ask for and what I provide whenever I offer a syndication is a resume. Um, I want to show, you know, show me everything you've done. Show me how it went. What are the deals you've done? What were the returns? Um, what was your role? Uh, so it's it's easy for me to say I, I've, I've syndicated developments, but do I really know how to develop? I don't have that experience. My partners do. Um, but could I go out and say that on a resume that I have development experience? Sure. So make sure you find out how involved they were in that position. What was their role? Were they, um, you know, just... I don't know, the admin on that project, or were they really the, the lead? So again, get their resume and find their involvement in those positions. Um, the next, I think, is to find out the fee structure and their salaries. Are in the syndication, is somebody getting a salary um, or taking high fees? Because if the project goes on for a long time, then those salaries and those fees are going to eat up any profit that there might have been. Um, so they, the operators get paid, but you don't. In fact, you could lose your money. So I don't like to be in deals where there's salaries or high salaries. If, you know, obviously people need to be paid, but ideally a syndicator should be well healed. They should have deep pockets that they don't need to take a salary. Um, fees, sure. Um, there's reasonable fees that keep the lights on. Uh, but that's just, again, my personal opinion. And then um, skin in the game. You know, syndicators don't always, a deal can go really well where the operator didn't have their own money in it. But if they have a lot of their own money in it, um, that helps. That, that helps to know that they are well healed, that they do care. They want to see the investment go well, especially if their money's on par with yours. If it's an equity position that gets paid out when you get paid out, that can help. Um, and then finally, it's just scaling too fast. Like you can do one deal really well. And we've seen this over the years with property managers, with, um, you know, syndicators who maybe they did really well on one deal and then they had to grow and hire more people and they might be good at real estate, but maybe they don't, don't know business and they don't know how to hire people and they, they don't know how to scale, uh, but they're just scaling too fast and then hiring the wrong people and the people they hire do a bad deal. I just met, I was just at the best ever conference with a, I won't say who, but a, a big group that is scaling very quickly. And they brought in somebody who just wasn't as good at due diligence, due diligence as they expected. And they got a bad deal, you know? And, and uh, so anyway, just scaling too fast makes me nervous, especially when people brag about it. You know, I've, I've just got 10,000 doors in the last two years. Well, you know, Ken McElroy <laughs> has 10,000 doors, but it took him 20 years. So how do, how do you scale like that? And unless you've had owned a business before, I can tell you personally as a business owner, I know my product, I know real estate, but I didn't know how to hire and manage. That's a whole nother skill set. So, you know, when someone has to, that's anyway, be aware of that. I think that that's excellent advice. I think the skill of identifying deals and even underwriting deals and managing managing them is a is a very different skill set, especially at the scale most syndications require because it is more like traditional business operations than it is real estate. And I also want to say like just from personal experience like when I first started investing in syndication, I felt like a little nervous to ask these types of questions. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you've had that experience, Kathy, like asking, like, are you taking a salary? Like you're questioning these people. But I found over the course of my uh, career that 
syndicators, the good ones, like when you ask those types of questions. They yeah. they want people who are going to dig into the numbers and who really understand it. They don't want people who are just going to throw money and then are going to ask silly questions later. They want people who know what they're getting themselves into. So I really encourage people to have a serious conversation with anyone they're going to invest with. Um, and don't be afraid. And if someone is unwilling to answer those questions for you, that is an enormous red flag. That's a huge red flag. I mean, in my syndications, when uh, since day one, I didn't know all the questions to ask because I was fairly new at it 14 years ago. Um, so I would have, I would, I wouldn't allow one-on-one -on -one conversations. I wanted everything to be in a webinar format or a Zoom format where smart, smart investors could ask questions that maybe another investor might not even have thought about. And I would make it very public and then I'd post those webinars on the investor page so that everybody could learn what are the questions I should be asking. And, and one person asked so many questions, I ended up hiring her. I'm like, man, you know so much about this. So she, <laughs> so people don't have to ask questions because she addresses it right off the bat. She was the one in the audience. I was like, oh no, she's gonna ask questions. I don't know, I'm just gonna bring her on my team. So um, absolutely, uh, I, I think more and more people are doing that where they're doing webinar marketing. And if you ask a question on that webinar and they don't answer it, that's, you know, that pay attention. Yeah, and that's a red flag in itself. We raise capital and we, pepper our potential investors with questions because as an investment business we need people on the same page as us and we have minimum investments that we collect and if you can't hit that threshold you can't be in there and i'm it's not a it's, it's just because we want a certain caliber investor with us if case something goes wrong you want the same like-minded people in the same foxholes you and the syndicators that will grab any dollar amount from anybody that's a red flag because they need the money. Whereas mm. we're doing an investment because we want to do it as a collective group, not just to make money. We feel good about the deal. We have money in the deal. People like-minded have money in the deal. And if if someone didn't ask me a bunch of questions as an investor, that would be a red flag immediately if I wasn't putting money in a fund. That's a great point. All right, well, thank you both. This has been super helpful. We should move on. And Henry, I miss you. I feel like I haven't even heard from you all day. So let's let's go and talk about contractors. Can you tell us about how you go about vetting contractors for your business? Absolutely, man. I think, you know, this is one of the this is one of the topics that I don't think get talked about enough with especially new real estate investors because it's such a key thing to need when you are buying under market value deals. Like you're buying them because there's some level of distress, right? You've got to go add that value. But it's one of the things that typically investors don't learn until they absolutely have to. And, uh, you know, I have all the same horror stories as all as all other new investors. I've hired contractors that have run off with my money. I've hired contractors that have, you know, wanted a big upfront upfront fee to get started and then didn't do what they said they were going to do. And so um, I've learned a lot along my investment journey. And so for me, one of the key things that I think new investors should be doing is um, I don't think people review existing work enough, right? Like, so a lot of new investors get a contractor name from like a real estate investment group, right? Somebody says, oh, you should work with, you know, so-and-so's contracting, right? Go to Henry's Contracting. They did my last deal, right? And so they call Henry's Contracting. Henry's Contracting comes out and gives them a bid. And then they're like, hey, I like that bid. And then they start the work. They didn't go look at any project that that company did or uh, have any understanding of how they operate. And, and so what we like to do is, yes, I'll take recommendations, but I want to go see work. So I'll ask for addresses of properties and I won't, and, and I make sure I don't, I don't schedule it. Like, I don't want to meet you there. Just tell me where the addresses are of ongoing projects. I want to pop in when I want to pop in, right? I want to do those unscheduled, unannounced visits because then I can get a true sense for how they keep the job site, how their team works, right? Are the people there? Um, organized? Is the site clean? Are they respectful, right? How do they treat me when I get there? Because these are people that are going to be managing your expensive renovation, right? If you're doing a 40, 50, 60, $100,000 renovation, you want to make sure that they are respecting your property. You want to make sure that they're doing what they say they're going to do. And so some of the things I take note of are just that. Is the job site organized? Is it 
dirty and disgusting, right? Um, because that could be a sign that if they don't keep the site organized, right, are they going to keep your money organized? Do they know what's getting done, what's not getting done? Do they know what materials are there or not there, right? Um, so I keep note of those things. Uh, so always, always try to go look at current jobs. Do not schedule it. Show up when you want to. If they don't like that, like if they seem put off by that, it's a red flag for me. Like I just will say, okay, well, then that's not somebody I'm going to work with, right? That doesn't mean that if they don't want to let me see it, they're a bad contractor. I'm just going off my best guess. My gut tells me that I should be able to move on and find somebody who'd be willing to let me see their projects. That's great advice, Henry. Can you give us an example of a time like you've done that and how you approached it when you were actually talking to the contractor? Are they okay with that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we've done it several times. So um, both times I typically will just ask the contractor, I'll say, hey, do you have any jobs going on right now? And most of the time they just tell me, they say, yeah, I've got one at one, two, three Main Street. I've got another one at four, five, six Main Street. Um, so yeah, go by, check them out and let me know. Right. They, I typically don't even have to ask if they're most of them are comfortable with it. Um, the ones that I have asked have had no problem telling me, and the ones that have had a problem, we just moved on, right? So I, the, the conversation's typically pretty easy. I have one contractor that I used for several jobs where I pulled up, so I was I was driving for dumpsters, right? That's what they call looking for contractors. When you see a dumpster on the side of the road, pull over and ask them. Ask them, yeah, driving for dumpsters, right? That's a good one. Pull yeah. over, pull over, and ask them who the contractor is, right? So I pulled over because uh, I saw a dumpster in front of a, a really nice looking house, and I said. Hey, I, I'm looking for the the contractor for this property. He was like, "Oh yeah, that's me." And I was like, "That's great. Is this your is this your project?" He was like, "Yeah, it's my house." I was like, "Oh, it's your personal house?" He was like, "Yeah, but we do contracting as well." And I was like, "That's awesome. Is, is like, do you have some work I can see?" And he was like, "Yeah, come on inside." And I <laughs> off the street walked in this guy's house. That's he showed awesome. me, walked me through all the work he did on his kitchen. I'm like shaking hands with his kids. Did you eat dinner? Or I, I, it was, it smelled delicious. I should have. I would, I would have. <laughs> I, was, I was open to it. Um, but we did several projects together after that. Right. And, and it all, and it all worked out well. So, uh, absolutely. The good ones are, have no problem with you seeing their quality of work and, and their job site. Um, the other thing that I like to do is I think oftentimes we're looking for as investors, we're trying to like get that the cheapest, the cheapest bid possible, right? We're trying to find the cheapest contractor and like being cheap is expensive. So mm -hmm. first of all, remember that. But, Second of all, like it's okay to sometimes pay for bids, right? Some contractors, when you say, Hey, I want to, you know, can you go out and give me a bid on one, two, three main street? Some contractors will come back and say, yeah, I can give you a bid, but I'm going to charge you, you know, 60 bucks, a hundred bucks, whatever it is like a trip charge for me to go out and do that. And I used to be really put off by that. But what I learned when I actually did decide to pay for that is I got my bids faster than just when a contractor went out there for free. I got a more professional bid because I paid for that bid, right? I got a more professional looking itemized bid. There was less back and forth. And in all honesty, who would you rather have managing your sixty to $100,000 renovation? You know, Bob's, Bob's remodeling, who showed up late, took notes on a, on a napkin, right? And then took three weeks to get back to you with a bid. And you may like the price or... You know, the contractor who show who charged you to be there, showed up on time, took notes, asked questions and got you a bid turned around within 24 to 48 hours. And you didn't have to go back and forth about that bid because it was everything that you asked for. Right. I would much rather have that person managing my extensive renovation. And so don't be afraid to pay for bids, because to me, what that says is I value my time. I'm a business person. And I want to give you a quality bid. I don't just want to throw a number out there so you hire me. Henry, um, when you're dealing with contractors, the the one thing that I've noticed, and it's in interesting that our show is called the Ponzi Scheme episode, is that a lot of contractors actually run mini Ponzi's, mm -hmm. where they use the money from their next job on to complete the job that they're working on right now. How do you go about making sure that the contractors aren't commingling funds between job sites? Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, that's that's <laughs> I dealt with a, a situation like that recently. And so we do when I do my um, contracts, I typically do a scope of work, which is another tip I was going to give people. I do a very high level scope of work at first. Right. Um, because contractors are the good ones are busy. 
And not every contractor is willing to do every job. And so you could have a job that's too small for certain contractors. You could have a job that's too big for certain contractors. And so to save myself a lot of time, I'll do a scope of work. And that scope of work is very high level. It's just room by room what I want done. So kitchen, I want new floors, this color paint on the walls, right? New baseboards, hang new light fixtures, right? Very high level. So it's a room by room thing. And then I can send that scope of work to the contractor ahead of time. That way, if the job is too small or too big, I know on the front side, we're not wasting anybody's time. But once we get that bid back, Jamil, and we know what the line item cost, uh, labor and materials is for each thing, we do, we pay based on work complete. So we'll give a percentage upfront to get materials to get started. But there is a, essentially a checklist. We take that, we take that scope, that scope of work and we break it down and we say, this is what you get to get started. And then these 10 items must be complete and checked off before we release the next draw for the next amount. And so everybody has to agree and is signed off that that is complete before we release the funds for phase two. And so we'll typically break a job into two to three phases based on how extensive that job is. And we all agree on the front side to sign a contract to say, okay, we're not moving on to the next phase until we all agree that the things in phase one are done and signed off on. And so that's typically how we're keeping or making sure that at least what we're giving them is being spent on what's being done. Or if they go spend it somewhere else, it doesn't matter. They have to complete these line items before we'll give them anything else, right? That was an important thing Henry just pointed out. A contract is not the same as a bid. A construction contract is where the contractor and the owner are on the same page with the same agreed upon terms. A bid does not reference that stuff. So that's very important that you contract every construction project. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So, yes, another thing is scopes of work. You should do those high level scopes of work. It saves yourself a lot of time. It'll save the contractors a lot of time. I've, I don't know how many times I've met a contractor at a job that he just didn't want to take for whatever reason because I didn't just send the scope of work on the front side so they could evaluate it. Because you don't know how busy they are, what their crews are at, right? They could have they could want your job, but they're plumbers six weeks out, right? And you've got a heavy plumbing uh, rehab, right? And so there's just sending that up front can help you save a lot of time uh, on the back end in picking your contractor. And then... Red flags that I like to look for, again, when you're looking at those jobs, take note of the job site, make sure it's organized and clean. You want to make sure that, um, and then take note of the communication, right? If you are struggling to get your contractor to answer the phone, to show up on time, to give you a bid, to answer text messages, and you haven't started a job yet, I promise you that doesn't get better once you give them some money, right? (laughs) Like if you're having trouble communicating on the front side, that's a red flag that that's how the communication is going to go for the entirety of your working relationship. And once you throw some money out there, you sure as heck are going to want that phone to be answered or those text messages to be answered, right? And that communication to be there. And so I found that the, that the contractors who communicate well on the front side are the best uh, with being open and upfront and communicating uh, on the backside, right? You don't want those contractors that never answer the phone or want to talk to you until it's time to get paid. Then one last thing to think about is a lot of contractors are going to ask for a percentage of that job up front. It's, it's sometimes typical, but I've been asked for as much as like 75% of the total project cost uh, on the first, on the first draw, right? To me, that's a huge red flag. Now, they are, most contractors are typically going to ask for some level of cost to get started because they've got to go buy materials. So some ways to think about that are just use your gut. Right. If you've got a sixty thousand dollar rehab and they want thirty to forty thousand of that up front, that's a good chance that they may not show up to do the rest of the work. They got half their money for doing nothing. Right. So use your gut. Right. But if they need a 20, 25 percent down payment, okay, think through what that is and then ask. Don't be afraid to ask. Say, hey, what do you need the twenty five thousand for? Typically, it's for materials. So you have a couple of options there. You can trust that that's true. Right. Or you can say, well, what materials do you need? And until we build trust, how about I source the materials or you get it on my pro account at, you know, whatever big box store and then they'll bill me. You'll get you all the materials you get started. Right. So that way there's some trust. I bought the materials. You did a little bit of the work. All right. Now we can release some more funds if they're not open to that. If they're saying, no, we need 50, 75 percent up front, then just leave. There's other contractors, guys. All right. Great advice. Thank you, Henry, and everyone for chiming in on that. Couldn't agree more on the 
the get what you pay for. I think that's a, a lesson we all learn very quickly into our investing careers. Jamil, let's move on to you. Let's talk about vetting a wholesaler. Where do you even start with this? It's a really good uh, question. You know, vetting a wholesaler is important, especially if you're a fix and flipper. You want to make sure that the person you're dealing with um, has is is giving you what they say they're giving you in in, in a wholesale deal in a contract, right? Because that's what we sell as wholesalers. We sell contracts. We sell opportunities. And so, is the opportunity really what they say it is? So first and foremost, if I'm buying a deal from a wholesaler, I ask for a redacted purchase and sale agreement, which is basically their contract to purchase the house. So I will never sign an assignment until I see the original purchase contract. And they can take out a few details. Like they wanna, if they wanna remove the seller's phone number and the seller's name, even the purchase price that they bought the house for, I, I, I'm okay not seeing that. Some wholesalers get sensitive. They don't want you to know how much money they're making. That's fine. Um, you can take that off the contract, but I do want to see the redacted contract because I'm, what I'm really interested in is the additional terms and contract, uh, additional terms of the contract. So I've been in a deal before where uh, I have signed an assignment and then I find, found out that I inherited a, a lease and I didn't budget for a lease. I, I didn't want to have to get rid of this uh, uh, occupant or have to deal with the occupant in itself. And there was one where I had gotten into a deal where it was a two-year lease. And so now I've got to deal with this whole situation. Um, the other thing that I would say is before getting into a deal with a wholesaler, always view the property. A lot of wholesalers will try to get you to commit to deals sight unseen. That's a very common tactic for wholesalers. They, they create FOMO. They create this um, you know, you got to move on this deal before anybody else gets it. I, I don't have a lot of time. I can't get access to the house. You're going to have to make a commitment and wire in earn, earnest money before you see the house. And I have been burnt in that same situation. Again, bought a house from somebody that we knew and trusted in town. They claimed the property was a three bed, two bath. We ended up buying it, closing it, and then finding out that it was a two bed, one bath. And it completely changed the math. So we lost significant, wow. significant money on that deal. Um, the other thing I would, I would look at is never buy a deal that has, is being transferred to you on a quit claim deed. So that's another thing that wholesalers will try to do. Um, they will go and, and try to do a deal outside of title. And oftentimes the reason they want to do that is because there's a lot of clouds on title or there's just an interesting situation going on with the chain of title and the title's not insurable. So they'll want you to do the deal by quit claim deed. Never do a wholesale transaction on quit claim deed. You will get burnt. The other thing I would ask a wholesaler is what's their volume? How many transactions are you doing on a month to month basis? Do you have any people that I can talk to that have bought deals from you? I would absolutely want to see that. The other thing is I would look at their wholesale list and I would see and check other properties that they had wholesaled and seen what are, where are those houses now? How, how, do those, how do they look? Are their ARVs real? If your wholesaler is sending you a property and they're overinflating their ARVs, then you know that they're not an honest person. Right, And you should be able to know an ARV and be able to understand what your after repair value is and not have to rely on a wholesaler's after repair value. If you are in this business and you're relying on a wholesaler's after repair value, pause and learn how to comp before you start spending money and getting involved. Um, the other thing I would do is ask for a wholesaler's website. If you're a legitimate business, you should be online. You should have a website. You can't just be uh, you know, a, a fly-by-night operation and not have any online presence. I want to see that you're doing business. And the problem is, is wholesaling is a very early, you know, early real estate investing technique. So people don't have a ton of money when they get started and they sometimes don't go and build a website. I, I think that that's not cool. You definitely need to have an online presence. I want to see what you've got. I want to see your inventory online. And then lastly, I would say Google the company. That's such a, I know it sounds common sense, um, but look, if I had Googled the people that I put money in on the, Ponsky, on the Ponzi scheme, I would have gotten some red flags ahead of time. I didn't do it. I, I trusted the people and I should have Googled and should have read every page, like all the way to th page four, five, and six, because page four, five, and six is where the actual meat and potatoes of their unsavoriness was talked about. Because page one, two, and three had all their current social media posts and all the things that were really, you know, uh, 
timely about them and maybe more current information, but you want to see what somebody's done in the past. You want to understand the skeletons in their closets, right? And so Google a company that'll give you some great details. You'd be surprised at how many folks will actually go to the internet and voice their concerns and their opinions when they've been burnt. Wow, that's a, a great piece of advice. So when you're looking over a, a contract, do you recommend people get lawyers or did you just learn to read these contracts yourself over time? Uh, I, you know, again, I think on the, the safe, the safe side, of course, always, always seek uh, an attorney's advice if you are unfamiliar with legalese and it can get a little complicated, but these contracts are pretty standard. And especially if it's like a board approved real estate agent contract, which I love. I love the board approved real estate agent contracts because they're very fair. They're always written quite neutral. And so I, I tend not to overcomplicate or overthink those ones. I, I, but I do read every line. I do make sure that I understand the contract and I do under, make sure that I understand my obligations. Um, but yes, you know, I, the other, other side of that is if you can't afford a, if you can't afford an attorney, one thing that's really interesting about title companies that a lot of people don't know is that they always have legal on staff. And you can actually ask your title company to get legal involved to help you walk through the contract because you have some questions. And they will. And it won't cost you any money. Hmm, that's great advice. All right, James. We would love to hear about working with lenders. How do you approach vetting any lenders you work with? Yeah, and this isn't really – lenders really aren't the Ponzi scheme unless you are the lender brokering the money out. you got to watch out for them for sure. But one thing that has happened dramatically over the last six months is the lending space has changed rapidly, right? Rates have gone up. Terms have gone up. Access to money has gone up. And so what has happened for a lot of these investors buying property is they get commitment for a loan verbally, and then last minute it changes right before closing, and the terms change. And it's being very detrimental to a lot of investors because they have to double their down payment size, their rates and their points change right last minute before your closing, which can dramatically affect your deal and the profitability of your deal. And so things that you want to do when you're vetting these lenders right now, because, you know, one thing that investors need to remember is most consumer protection rules don't apply to us. We're not protected. This is commercial loans. And so vetting is so important. So things that I like to do when I'm talking to a new lender is, A, what are their contingencies for funding? We own a hard money company in Washington. We fund in our backyard, interest funding. We do not have any subject to appraisal. It is all underwritten in-house. It is myself or my business partner's call 100%. And we have nobody that's going to trump us. And so that's a that's a committed deal. So if I'm talking to a different lender and they have they're subject to appraisal because they want to fit inside the box for whoever they're going to sell their note for, that means whatever they told me can change rapidly. And so you want to know what are their actual terms for funding? Does it need to appraise? Is your debt fixed? That is a big deal right now. I've been seeing a lot of flippers, um, or I'll be talking to them like, yeah, I just. Or I was actually talking to a lender that loans a lot of money to flippers. And they go, yeah, we're still lending at 9.5% right now, which is low for hard money in today's space. But they, and I go, well, how does that work if it doesn't appraise out? Because I also know they sell their notes off. They had a clause in there that if it didn't hit the, the future market value quarter to a, according to a third-party appraisal, that their rate went from 95 to 13% and two points automatically got charged. Because then they have to dispo that loan out to somebody else. That is detrimental to an investor. And a lot of flippers don't understand. And you got to read through these terms and conditions. Because if your deal switches three points on your rate over a six to 12 month period, you can go in the red really fast. Um, and so the other thing you want to look at is as a lender, a lot of us are doing heavy value add, heavy construction. What is the issuance of their construction funds? Is there verbiage in there? For us as a lender, you know, hard money, I, I say there's two different types of lenders out there for bridge financing. There's hard money, which are guys that will issue you the money themselves. They've controlled that capital. Then there's the soft money, which are guys that broker loans out to big note buyers. And they're two different things. The, the soft money guys have a little bit lower rate but they come with all these conditions. And so you have to watch out for these construction draws. What's happening right now is these soft money lenders will say, yes, I will give you your $100,000 loan to Jamil, and we're gonna issue you this money over this draw schedule. But there's a condition in there that if the loan to value drops, 
they won't issue any more construction funds. Even though they've committed that you need that money to stabilize that asset, if the loan to value drops below that, they won't issue you the money and you gotta come out of pocket with that those rehab dollars. That is also detrimental to your deal. It can affect your cash on cash return. You might not have the liquidity. You can get yourself behind on payments because you gotta come up with the funds otherwise. And so really get these, these terms specified when you're talking to lenders. I always wanna know who's actually funding me the money. Is it a shadow company that's brokering the loan out, or is it guys with the actual capital? Those are two different types of lenders, and you can you can ask those questions. Most of the time, they're not going to tell you those answers, but you can look at how, you know, then you go into what are your conditions? Does it need to meet appraisal? How does your construction draws work? Uh, what, uh, what are their processes? Because those things have to be built out, and depending on their processes, you know, my red flag always is, if they say, well, we send out a third-party construction team to review it. As a hard money lender in Washington, we review it all ourselves. We have people on staff that go look at this stuff. I don't want a third party to interpret a construction site. So that will tell you who you're working with. Um, because the thing is, as an investor, hard money costs more than soft money. It's usually one to two points higher on the rate. But if it can help you get that project done, you want to go with your hard money guy. And the thing is, you want to know this up front. You don't want to know after you bought the deal. Because if you know it up front, you can buy that deal cheaper to offset the debt cost. So when you're interviewing these lenders, really lock in your terms. Is there any variance in those terms? Can they switch things? And if they can, you want to lock in those terms. Don't buy anything on variable rates right now. It is not going to work in your favor. How would you, James, uh, advise people who are new to this, who are trying to get like their first loan? What do you even look for? Like you're talking to probably a dozen lenders every time you do a deal. Mm-hmm. You know, how should people even find good lenders to approach in this type of environment? So the best thing you can do is find a backyard lender. Guys that are local, like Interest Funny, our lending company, we only lend in Washington State. That's all we lend in. That's why we have full control. If I'm if I was lending out in Arizona, that's going to be an issue for me. I don't know the market as well. I don't know construction costs as well, and so you start to that becomes a riskier loan. So find people in your backyard is is the best thing you can do for a lender. The second thing is you can also look at private lenders, not just co- co- uh, commercial. A lot of these bigger shops, they're they're trying to deploy as much money as they can on the street nationwide because it makes their company more value and they're working on small yields at this point. And they're just trying to spend as much money as possible. Your backyard lenders or your private lenders in your backyard, they're going to understand you as a business and they're going to work with you more business to business rather than just do you fit in my box to lend you money or not. So look for your guys that are local. All right. Well, thank you to Jamil, Henry, Kathy, and James for sharing their expertise on how they vet those operators. We're now going to go to the second part of our show where we're going to hear from first Jamil and then from James about how they found themselves involved with scams and what they learned from those experiences. Yeah. So I just learned that the the perpetrators in my in investment have now been uh, charged by the CFTC. Sorry, what is the CFTC? Oh, it's a, a regulatory body, like, uh, much like the FTC or the SEC. They're a governmental agency that it basically is set up to protect consumers against fraud. Great. And um, so their job is to make sure that people aren't selling illegal securities, that they're uh, regulated, that they have licenses, and that if they're raising funds from the general public, that they do it in the appropriate manner. And so... Um, this individ- this situation happened. Uh, it's, I would call this more of an affinity Ponzi scheme. So, uh, how it how it went down is you know, Pace Morby and I were at uh, a mastermind of very very well known um, people in our industry, and uh, after the mastermind, one of uh, the attendees called Pace and I over and told us about this incredible investment that they were in that was generating one to two percent returns a day and you know right away when you hear stuff like that you know the 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 red flags go right up but we're talking about people that we we know very well and and again you know it was framed to us in a way that we were almost being shamed for not realizing that there were better returns available in the world but we had been just so mindset we had been our mindsets were so 
um, broken that we didn't believe that anything better than 10 or 15% a year or 12 to 15% a year was actually real, right? And so um, because of that, our initial spidey senses were kind of like let down and, and we let we listened to the rest of the pitch. So this, this individual shows us uh, an account with uh, $650 million. And uh, he said, this is the account that I've been, uh, uh, money has been placed in to buy my trading bot. So this was a, um, uh, the, the scam or whatever was, there was this savant trader who was trading US dollars against gold and was incredibly gifted at, at timing the market. And he called it uh, front running, uh, which is a very legal thing to do. Um, how it works is these high frequency traders have these computers that are able to monitor when large institutions are placing orders for or selling gold. And because they're able to know when these orders are happening, they can place their orders and follow whichever direction these institutions are, are in. And it's completely legal and you know, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. If you have a computer that is that's able to monitor that and track it, then then good for you. And so we thought we were getting involved in, in, in something like this and also that there was some technology or an AI that was involved in, in also timing the market. So we get in and um, I, I, I started with the with, to the tune of five hundred thousand dollars and immediately start seeing and, and again, the, the returns weren't. I weren't. I wasn't able to realize any of the returns. I, I hadn't pulled any money out, but I was getting mailed, emailed daily statements, and I, the the two percent, one to two percent was happening, and so I'm I'm getting really excited, right? Because I'm I'm seeing that a five hundred thousand dollar investment, you know, at the end of thirty days, that's, I mean, it's twenty trading days, right? So so you're we're talking twenty percent in a month, right? Like that's that's phenomenal. I've never seen a return like that. And, you know, as a real estate investor, I'm making 20% a year, but I'm doing the work and I'm breaking my back to do it. Right. So I'm thinking, wow, I can, I'm, I can get the returns that I'm getting in a year on my money in a month. Like this is, this is fantastic. So I double down and I send in another $500,000 and pace does the same. Right. So we're, we're both into this thing for a million bucks now. And, um, that's, uh, where everything starts going wrong. So, a couple months later, I put in a withdrawal request to even just, I wanted to test a $100,000 withdrawal. So I have a million dollars in. It says now that my million dollars has grown to three million. And I'm, I'm you know, now I want to pull my principal out, right? So I, I, I first take out 100,000. I, I submit a withdrawal request to take out 100,000. And then I submit subsequent withdrawal requests to take out the rest of the hundred thousand, the million dollars that I have in, I've never seen a dime, and uh, none of those withdrawals have been redeemed. And then just recently, uh, about a week ago, in fact, when we were uh, in Denver, actually, I received an email that the CFTC had charged the individuals that were involved in this as a, a Ponzi scheme, and all of their accounts have been frozen, and and so this is going to not end well for Pace or I and other friends. We have, we have other friends who I won't name. Um, uh, one who has a, an additional three and a half million, another who has 3 million in it. And these are sophisticated people, right? Like these are people that have, they were able to make millions of dollars. I mean, I don't consider myself a dummy, but I do feel dumb. I do feel very dumb because I, I, I should have done more due diligence. You know, I, I allowed myself to get sucked in based off the relationships that I had. And I thought that everybody that was involved, you know, when you, when you think of somebody that it has a large influence and is well known, you almost feel like they're, they're too big to screw you. Right. And, and that's never the case. I am just completely ashamed. I feel terrible that I put myself and my family in the situation where I lost a million dollars of our nest egg and uh, I learned, I learned a valuable lesson and it's to do a lot more due diligence and never to trust anything that seems too good to be true because at the end of the day, it very likely is. 
I just want to give you a hug. <laughs> Thank you, Kathy. Yeah, I'm very sorry to hear that, Jamil. It's really unfortunate, and I'm sorry to hear that you're going through that. We appreciate you telling this story to help raise awareness to people about what is going on. I mean, frankly, unfortunately, this is not the first story about a Ponzi scheme or a scam impacting real estate investors I've heard over the last, I don't know, two or three years. Um, have you heard anything else like this? Or is this did this really come as a surprise to you because you hadn't heard of similar scams before? Well, for me, I think it was... It was. I've I've heard of scams, right? I mean, I I'm a fan of watching American Greed. I I I, I you know I watch the show just because it's interesting to see and hear all these people who would gamble their lives away for a quick a quick buck, you know. And so I watch it just out of curiosity. But so I know scams exist. It's just that I didn't think that they were that close to me, and I and I didn't think that the people. That I had, that I knew, and that I liked, and that I trusted, would be involved in them. You know that that to me is the part that's the most hurtful, mm-hmm. because I I trusted the I trusted the people involved. I truly did. I truly believed that they had my best interests at heart. That they were friends, you know. And then I come to find out that these individuals they all profited off the million dollars that I sent in. Everyone was paid referral fees on my money. Wow, you know, and and it's like, gosh, you know, and and, and you know, now I, I, yeah, I can sue everybody, you know, and that's and and I, I'm 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 definitely gonna go to law enforcement, and I'm 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 not gonna stay quiet about it, you know, I'm not naming names right now, but if anyone has or wants to know any more information, by all means, send me a a, a message offline, and I'm happy to share details in 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 greater detail, but. Um, until this situation is completely resolved, I'm, I, I have to be mindful of the legalities involved in the, in the sensitivity of the situation, but I won't stay quiet. I'm not going to be a, a silent victim. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that these people are banking on is that the majority of people just, they feel so ashamed for being duped that they don't say anything, that they don't come out, that they don't, they don't share and i think also that they they looked at pace and i as having such big profiles that they thought they would never these two would never share with the general public that they were that they were duped for a million dollars each because that'll just make them look dumb right so i think these guys would be a great target right but i'm not i'm not you know what i'm happy call me dumb call me dumb but you know what you're not going to call me you're not going to call me a victim Jamil, your friends, uh, do you think they knew it was a Ponzi or do you think yes. they were even, uh, they did 100% know? they knew Ouch. it was a Ponzi scheme. Absolutely they knew it was a Ponzi scheme. Everybody involved knew it was a Ponzi scheme. They were all taking fees. If you're taking fees off of my money that and there's been no returns generated and I heard that the fees were like upwards of 20%. So if I send in a million dollars and you get 200 grand of that and nothing has been generated in profit yet, how is it not a Ponzi scheme? Oh, that's coming back though. Yeah. Anybody that made money on this will be giving it back. They'll be they'll be forced to pay it back. Well, it sounds like you know that from experience, James. <laughs> so James or, or Jamil, yeah, yeah. Sorry to hear that. And again, um, you know, Jamil is being wise because this is an ongoing investigation and not uh, publicly discussing some of the details. But as he said, uh, if you want to ask him about it, he's been very open about that, and we appreciate that. Um, James, I know you. You've also um, unfortunately been a part of a Ponzi scheme unknowingly. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I guess it kind of starts out a very similar to what Jamil said. And it's, you know, I was approached. Uh, so I had a good friend of mine um, meet somebody down in California, Beverly Hills. And actually, I can talk about this guy because he just got sentenced to 20 years in prison. Let's name some names. Who do you got? We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll get to that. It's um, And so he calls me up and he says, hey, I met this awesome entrepreneur he just sold his business to howard schultz and he's been relocated out to beverly hills and they are in the the film business and their business is locking up uh, after movies get produced they get released then they go onto the secondary market and they would go secure the rights for these contracts and then sell them off to netflix uh Sony, whatever all the streaming channels were, and they had a, a group of channels that they were working with. When, at the time, when my buddy approached me, I actually told him I just wasn't interested because 
you know, or we were flipping homes and we make pretty high returns and I like making money on stuff that I control. I, I don't like giving up a lot of control on these things. But he he really gave me a hard press and not because he didn't he was trying to get money out of me or like trying to manipulate he just really believed in it. And so I flew down. Uh, well, the first red flag was uh, this guy named Zach Horowitz. Uh, they they uh, they took me out and they flew me down to Vegas on a private jet. And he rented this huge suite and they took us out all weekend. And he never asked for money at this time. And but it was about setting the presence. Um, and he was a very personal person. Actually, I really liked him when I got to hang out with him. Seemed down to earth. Had a, you know was engaged. Had all the right story. Had he, I got his whole background story because I really like to get to know people before I invest any money with them. And but the issue I was having was the collateral. I didn't like the collateral. I was going to give them money on a rights to a movie. I don't know what to do with that contract. You know, it's like, <laughs> and so anytime I'm investing in anything, I'm looking at what's the collateral. And if something goes wrong, what can I do with it? And the only thing I knew what to do with rights to a movie was really use the bathroom with it. I was like, what do I do with this? And um, you weren't going to make your own movie and star in it. it yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't have. Uh, well, and these were all in Spanish, too. And I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> so it's a. Uh, um, but so the, the whole setup was was, hey, so you would come in, you, you'd fund the right to the movies as a bridge lender. Then once HBO and Sony would buy this movie off you, they were going to kick you a 20 to 25 percent return in a 90 day window, which is very high that is exceptionally high just like jamil said we're we're fighting to make 20 30 percent on an annual basis and to break our backs and and so what i did is because i knew the person that was involved you know i i he, they kind of guilted me a little bit like hey can you help us get this going and and that was the first mistake never do an investment based on friendship you make it an investment based on what you're trying to accomplish and verifying the information. The other thing is I don't like to invest in stuff where people are asking me for money and I don't understand it. Like I, when I go invest in things, I'm going out and looking in industries that it, that I'm interested in. And, and then I will find the operators in there. Um, so I end up doing over a two to three, about a two year period. I end up doing about five deals with them and I make about $252,000 in this uh, Ponzi scheme, and I probably put up 250, and I made two. So I made 100 percent of my money on these deals that I had done, which was great. Um, but the the red flags kept coming to me, and you know, and it was really sold to me on a friendship. Like, hey, this is the you know, these are great people, these are great people. But where I was seeing the mechanical breakdown was, I started noticing their paperwork wasn't in line. Like in for the amount of money these guys were saying they were doing, because this Ponzi scheme ended up getting shut down for six hundred and fifty million dollars is how wow. much this, this thing raised. And when I got their paperwork, it was like elementary. It was not by done by attorneys. You could tell it was not. They they didn't have their securities. Their for, the Reg D filed. There was all these. Um, all these red flags and my you know my friend my buddy was just like well they're you know he's just busy he's an entrepreneur no business runs that way if you're making if you're raising 650 million dollars you you better expect to be able to talk to a securities attorney and i asked to talk to their securities attorney and i got kind of the push around at that point and so uh the paperwork is bad um the timelines were a little weird and then in addition to their like they had switched the format a couple times because he was trying to figure it out. And the biggest red flag I saw was when my uh, this guy asked me for an example because we have a debt fund up in Washington, we've or an equity fund. It's a hard money fund. We've ran it for 18 years. And they asked me for an example of how I structured that because they were going to do debt and they wanted an equity example. So I sent them off my fund docs. When I received my investor docs back, guess which documents they were? <laughs> they were my own documents. And as soon as wow. I got that, I was like, this is a joke. And so what I, I, how I ended up getting out of that was I, you know, I waited that I kind of baited them because the deals would pay off after four to six months. And once it paid off, I committed verbally, I was going to do the next deal. But I said, hey, just get it back in my account. I need to do it for accounting purposes. Money came back to my account. I was done. And I said, hey, guys, sorry, something came up. I have to invest over here. Uh, I'll come back later, and I never came back. So did you wait? Just to clarify, did you get a profit, or you just pulled your principal? I out? made a profit, so I made two hundred forty thousand okay. on that. And uh, and but in the back of my mind, for five years, I was like, someday I'm going to have to give that money back. 
because it just didn't seem right. And and then what had happened is five four years later, uh, all of a sudden my phone burns up with news articles, Fox News, CNN, uh, American Greed, all these things come out about this guy, and he had just been arrested for six hundred and fifty million dollar Ponzi scheme. And the the crazy thing is, is everyone was investing in this person because of who he was and the image that he put out. This guy never invested one single dollar. He sent off. He had emails and contracts from Netflix to buy your for, buy your contract off you. They were all fabricated, fake email addresses, wow. fake contracts. No one at Netflix even knows who this person is. <laughs> um, and not only wow. that, I, I saw an article that Howard Schultz is like, I have no idea who this person is. So he was dropping Howard Schultz names everywhere. And it's that whole act as if Howard thing. Schultz, by the way, is the CEO of Starbucks. Yeah, big people. Don't know. He's got a little bit coin on him. And um, yeah. <laughs> and so all these red flags kind of like and so that was my thing, because the the red flags for me was the returns were too high. It was too easy. Their paperwork and structure was incorrect. And I could not verify the collateral. All four of those things made me pull my money out at that point. That doesn't mean that I'm really smart. It was just a risk thing for me. I'm like, this is so risky, and I can do flip properties and make nearly the same return and have full control. And so it wasn't – I didn't pull it out because I thought it was a Ponzi scheme. I thought there was a lot of red flags there. I thought he had those relationships, though. But it was just more of a, hey, this is safer for me. I'm going to control the money. Now, fast forward, after he got arrested, there's something called a clawback, period. And it, that was not enjoyable. I got calls from federal trustees to go over, A, why I pulled my money out, because I was one of the only people that actually did that. Of all these very, just like Jamil said, a lot of very intelligent people had invested millions and millions of dollars in this company, and they left it. And it's not because they weren't smart. They just trusted this this guy. And, and unfortunately, it was too much trust. And so they were looking at me like, why did you pull your money out? And we went over that of why. But fast forward, it was not an enjoyable experience. Then because these guys, how they ran their accounting was so off, there was wires flying all around. And it actually made it look like I made more money because the guy would wire me money and then have me wire it back. And then he would have me wire more. So there was all these weird wires going out. And then they tried to hit me for double, and I had to fight them for 90 days. So they said I owed them $580,000 because they included my principal and everything in there, which is not how clawbacks work. So for the last 90 days, I've been fighting with this federal trustee, getting it down to the $248,000 that I actually made. Now, for me, I was good paying that money back because that's not my money at that point. I don't want to take anybody's money that is, I mean, that's stolen money. All that profit is stolen. And so I was good giving that back. But we had to go through, I had to pay a lawyer about 20 grand to negotiate this to like what the actual amount was, show all the verification that that's what I actually made because they wanted double. And I think right now I'm the only person that has wired back in money because I was the only person that actually took it out. Um, and I actually sending the wire tomorrow for 248000 which isn't great, right? That was money that I've already invested in other projects and did these things. So now I got to come up with this liquidity. But it's, you just have to, with these Ponzi schemes, you have, it, it's, it's, it's hard because you meet these people and they have so much charisma. They seem like such great people. And that's really what it comes down to. You're not investing always in the people. You need to verify the process too. Great people can be great people for a short amount of time, but if you don't verify, if they're not great people and you can't verify the paperwork and process, stay clear because it is a total headache. It's a total mess. A lot of people that I know very important to me have lost a lot of money in this deal, and it's a sad thing to see, um, but it, it was completely reckless. If anyone wants to see more, they can check out American Greed. They just ran an episode on them. It's called One in a Million Capital, Zach Horowitz. Uh, and uh, it talks about how he wants to be an actor. Basically, this Ponzi scheme funded his whole acting career, which oh, he was not yes. good at, by the way. Wow. <laughs> he was not good. You know, it, it's, I totally agree with you. I've seen so many Ponzi schemes and and have personally known people. I didn't invest in those deals, but I, I saw them at different events. I, I've been to events where the SEC would escort people off the stage even. You know? <laughs> but um, the, the general uh, thing that they have in common is they are very charismatic. And they, they come across as 
just really good people. And when I started to study it, I actually did a show on it once on, you know, what is this type of personality that can just rip you off and not feel bad about it? And, and it could be that it's sociopathic behavior where, um, you know, a sociopath knows how to get what they want and they use all the things that they know that work, which is charm and taking you on, you know, on private jets and so forth, but they don't have any compassion, like zero. They don't, or empathy, like none. So they don't feel bad at all about taking them your money. It's like, in this case, it could be that he really felt like, but I need to fund my acting career. The world needs to see me on stage. This kid was so bad at <laughs> acting. Knows? He was terrible. Absolutely terrible. <laughs> And he'd be like telling me, he's like, oh, I'm flying overseas. And that was another red flag. He's like, yeah, I'm going to overseas to con, and we're, now we're producing movies. And I'm like, so let me get this straight. The fund that you're raising money for is now producing the movies that you're the lead actor in? Hmm. <laughs> I was like, I wonder how this is all going. All right. Well, thank you all. This has been super helpful to, to understand. Unfortunately, we do have to get out of here because this, uh, this show is uh, already running long. But you packed it with full full of great information. So thank you all. I appreciate you sharing all your, your stories and uh, especially the losses. You know, a lot of uh, people aren't as willing to share some of their uh, unfortunate situations where they've lost money. But um, as you've all shared, those are some of the best learning experiences. So thank you for uh, sharing those all with our audience. Uh, if anyone wants to connect with you, Henry, where should they do that? The best place to find me is on Instagram. I'm at the Henry Washington on Instagram or go to henrywashington.com. All right, Jamil. You can find me on IG as well at J D A M J I. Also YouTube, just youtube.com slash Jamil Damji. Awesome. Kathy? On Instagram, it's Kathy Fedke. That's with two T's. There's somebody trying to pretend they're me, and that's one T. Don't listen to them. And then, of course, at realwealth.com. All right, great. And James? Uh, easiest way is probably Instagram, J Dane Flips or jamesdaner.com. All right, great. And I am at the Data Deli on Instagram, or you can always find me on Bigger Pockets. Thank you all so much for listening. We appreciate you. Hopefully, you learned something great here. And just remember, real estate is exciting. You want to get into it, but you take a beat, vet who you're working with, and make sure that you're working with reputable people. It will help your investing career more than you know. On the Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Research by Pooja Jindal. And a big thanks to the entire BiggerPockets team. The content on the show on the market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market, it's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that, or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.